Good morning. I am Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM. Today we're very pleased to have in our studio audience Ms. Katie Orenstein, author and founder and director of the Op-Ed Project. Katie, welcome to the program and thank you for interrupting your very busy schedule today and joining us to share your thoughts and insights on leadership and most importantly tell us about this great program, the Op-Ed Project. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Could you share with our audience a little bit about the highlights of your background, your education, and experience? I'm a writer and a journalist and a folklorist. Uh, I studied folklore, and then I traveled to Haiti right out of college and began writing as a journalist. Um, I, I spend a lot of time writing about the intersection of media and mythology, or in, in another way of putting it, what's, what is true and what's fiction. And uh, I'm very interested in that intersection because I think that what we think of as true and not true has a lot to do with who tells the story. Wow. I've never heard media mythology mixed like that. And um, in regards to your travels to Haiti, what did you seek to find in Haiti when you went there right after your education? I went there to study folklore, but a coup broke out while I was down there. And oh. so instead I began writing about the politics, and especially I wrote about the media coverage. There, um, there was a lot of complaints at the time on the part of um, Haitians, especially Haitians living abroad, that major American media were not covering Haiti, um, that they were covering Haiti from a very American perspective and a very State Department perspective. And in fact, they were right. If you, uh, one of the things that I, early article that I did was just to look back and count the sources for the stories in major media, especially the New York Times. And um, they, it turned out that they were right. A vast majority of sources were from U.S. diplomats or foreign diplomats or from Haitians living abroad and working with uh, foreign organizations. And how long did you stay in Haiti uh, d during this period of your life? Um, uh, well, about three years over different periods of time, so broken up over a little bit of, of time. Considering the recent unfortunate developments, have you been back to Haiti to do any coverage there? Cheryl, I, um, this was uh, quite some time ago. I haven't been back in several years, and I, I don't really cover Haiti at all anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's talk about the Op-Ed Project. Um, what is it all about? The Op-Ed Project is an initiative to radically enrich public knowledge by increasing the range of voices that we hear from, especially women's voices. And um, the reason it's founded is because if, no matter where you get your ideas about the world, whether you get them on, online or on television or in print or on the radio or, fr or from your friends, you are almost certainly getting a very warped perspective because the vast majority of voices that we hear from and the opinions that are replicated and um, amplified in our media and in our culture come from a very, very narrow range of people, almost in, you know, overwhelmingly Western, privileged, white, and male. And in fact, if you look across various media outlets and various outlets of thought leadership, it runs about 80 to 85 percent male. Whether you look at opinion forums online or op-ed pages, in traditional media, whether you look at pundits on television talk shows on Sunday morning, whether you look at Congress, which is 83% male. That means we're getting a very narrow range of perspectives, an incredibly narrow tunnel vision, which is actually very dangerous. 
Do you have any statistics in regards to, I mean, obviously you're, you're absolutely spot on in regards to your, your, your thoughts about uh, the numbers, but have you, have you done any <clears throat> hard statistical look at And when you look at a New York Times op-ed, how many comments are from men or how many comments are from women? Well, uh, I I want to just make a distinction between um, commentary or editorials or opinion pieces or op-eds, whatever you want to call them, and comments, which that is usually, some people may think that those are the uh, reader comments posted online below a piece, uh, which are also overwhelmingly male, by the way, but, um, well, depending on the outlet. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you can see uh, on our website, www.theopedproject.org, that we track the ratio on a weekly basis. So last week, the New York Times was running around, I think, 81, 82% male. And we, we vary the outlets that we track, but currently, over this three-month period, we're tracking Slate, I think Salon, The Daily Beast, Huffington Post, The New York Times, The Washington Post. Maybe the, I think the Wall Street Journal is also in this, this tracking. And we're also tracking three college newspapers, uh, Yale, Princeton, and Columbia. Very nice, very nice. And, and what is the mission of the Op-Ed Project? The mission is to enrich public debate by increasing the range of voices we hear from, especially women, in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. And what motivated you to, to organize or to form this this Uh, this organization? I think, um, well, there's a deep motivation and then also a more immediate motivation. Mm -hmm. The deep motivation, I I think, um, as a member of a a group of people who is not, you know, overwhelmingly represented or well represented, and I, I, I guess you could appreciate this as well, I feel that the world that I live in doesn't, uh, reflect my viewpoints Mm -hmm. as much as as it could. Not my personal viewpoints, but the kind of viewpoints that people like me might have, um, women in my case. And, um, I, and I think that's not just a, a problem for us. I think that's a problem for everyone. It means that half the brain power out there is not being tapped. And if you think, as I think, that half the best minds and ideas in the world come from women, well, that's a tremendous loss to society. And there was a more immediate reason for the project as well. Um, About five years ago, a big debate broke out about why there are so few women and so few voices in general in thought leadership. Larry Summers, who has been the president of Harvard, gave a very controversial speech in which he wondered why there were so few women in higher math and science, and could it be a question of biological aptitude. And then a prominent syndicated columnist named Susan Estrich accused the Los Angeles Times of sexism uh, because they ran... I think around, around 90% of their op-ed page was skewing male at the time. And those two things sparked big debates nationwide. And some people weighed in. I, Maureen Dowd at the New York Times weighed in and said, no, no, it's the way we're socialized. Women are afraid of being attacked. And uh, so it sort of went around in circles. Biology, sexism, socialization. And I watched that debate with a lot of interest because I also realized that there was another simpler and far more solvable part of the problem, which is that women don't submit with anywhere near the frequency that men do to these key opinion forums and front door forums, and that these front door forums feed everything else. And by front door forums, I mean 
short commentary forums wherever they appear. Those are sort of the front door into the marketplace of ideas, and they feed everything else. They generate book contracts and television appearances and policy consulting opportunities. And so those things in turn generate larger leadership and thought leadership opportunities, which means that the, the submissions that, that, you know, the, the, the fact that very few women are submitting to these key front door forums can predict that there will be very few women at higher and higher levels of thought leadership and levels of leadership in general. And I thought, why don't we just increase the numbers? Why don't we increase the numbers of women submitting? And for that matter, all underrepresented voices. I mean, it might be sexism, it might be biology, it might be socialization, it might be you know any of those things, but how would we know if we weren't submitting? So let's start by increasing the number of people in the pipeline submitting. <clears throat> That's excellent. And how do you go about uh, getting women involved to participate in the op-ed project? Mm-hmm. Well, we do three things. I, I just I want to say right off the bat that women are our primary focus, but they're not our only focus. It's it's just a matter of bandwidth. I think the, the goal of the project is to amplify and increase the range of underrepresented voices for the sake of all of us. Not and so it's not just for or about women, but they are our near-term focus. Mm-hmm. The way we do it, we do three things. Um, the first thing we do is we make the mechanisms of public discourse transparent. You know, how does it work? How might you get on an op-ed page? How might, how might it happen that you might get on TV? How, how does it work? What, are, what do you need to know to be taken seriously? And the second thing we do is we, we don't wait for people to come to us. Instead, we go out and proactively find women experts in all fields who have great ideas, and we train them. You know, nothing heavy duty, but how, how can you make your ideas fit this format so that they uh, can be advanced in the public sphere? And uh, we do that by working primarily with top universities and think tanks and nonprofits and uh, community organizations. We, we just finished uh, working with a group of companies out in Silicon Valley, um, Google, Yahoo, Facebook, SAP, others. We uh, also run public programs in six cities, uh, so anyone can actually come and join us in those cities. They're New York, D.C., San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, and Boston. And then the third thing that we do is once people have come through our program, we connect them whenever they have a, a solid draft of an op-ed or any idea that they're advancing in the form of an op-ed because we define it really expansively. We connect them with people who already have access. So we run a national micro-mentoring program with high, high-level media mentors. We call them mentor editors. There are now 75 of them nationwide. Um, there are, in that group, 17 Pulitzer Prizes. They have high-level um, positions as editors and columnists and major awards. These are super high-level people who really care about the quality and diversity of our national conversation. And for that reason, they volunteer every month to mentor one woman who's come through the program. That is excellent. And in our second program, we're going to uh, talk more about that and have a special guest there. So I'm looking forward to uh, learning more about the the Mentor Editor program. And this program that you have, as you say, you have three particular goals, uh, three particular things that you do. You make the public discourse transparent. um, You find the women experts and you provide them with some training. And then, of course, you connect them with the outlets, which is is an awesome thing. 
Right, not, not with the outlets per se. We, we do actually make all that information transparent, but we, we connect them with media mentors, so high-level people who will give them feedback on their work, mm-hmm. talk to them about how it works. So that's a little bit different. We don't pitch. We're not a, we're in, we're not a PR agency in any way. Right, right. I'm right. with media gatekeepers, but it's, a, it's for mentoring, not, mm-hmm. not selling. Thank you for that correction. And over the course of 2010, what gains have you seen uh, that the Abed Project has achieved in, in amplifying uh, the voices about uh, the various different topics that we debate on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. Such a, thank, thank you for asking that. Such a great question. Well, we track a number of different things. One thing that we track are the number of participants in our community and how they do in terms of publications. We now have major publications happening almost every day. Um, Today and yesterday, we had um, someone in USA Today, the homepage of the Huffington Post. We have something coming out in the New York Times. We had something in the Washington Post on Sunday. So um, we have major publications happening in major outlets every single day. We track those, and then anecdotally, we track the extended impact of those. So, for example, for example, we have one alum who her first op-ed landed her in a contest in the Washington Post for, to, to have a column. And she beat out 4,800 aspiring columnists, and became, she was the runner-up in that, in that contest. And as a result, received a lot of visibility, was invited to be in a prominent debate with Ayan Hersey Alley about uh, Islam, and, and then was invited to uh, be on CNN. So there's sort of, um, you know, we, we regard these forums as a gateway, and we anecdotally track not just the publications and the self-reported successes, but also what are the results, what is the extended impact of those successes. The other thing that we track is how media outlets are doing. And we obviously can't claim full responsibility for this, but media outlets are doing a little bit better this year than they were two years ago, at least by our um, trackings. So where media outlets were, the most prestigious media outlets were running 85 to 90% male two years ago, they are running closer to 80, maybe low 80s now, at least in the last two months. And some of them are doing significantly better. You can see that on our website. Again, it's the opedproject.org. So you can see for yourself um, because things vary week to week and month to month. But we're noticing a slight trend of improvement. That is so good to hear. That is so good to hear. In the recent election, um, there was a lot of voices out there. And uh, from your perspective, uh, how, what role did the Op-Ed Project play in trying to convey the various different messages that people were trying to convey during the last uh, election? Well, we don't try and convey any particular message at all other than our own message, which is that we would be a richer, smarter more interesting world if more people had a voice. And that a diversity of ideas is um, a good idea for, for a number of reasons, not just for the, the, for the diverse peoples represented, but for all of us. That, I think that's the message that we convey. And because that's our message, because we are a diversity of ideas project, we don't favor one set of ideas over another. So we we don't, for example, favor progressive ideas over conservative ideas. Our viewpoint is that 
the ability to air different ideas in a pr productive, interesting, um, useful way will be good for the world. That is that is that is such an awesome awesome objective. Simply because you're not taking, as you said, you're not taking a position in in either way. But what you're saying is that let all voices be heard, and hopefully through all voices being heard, that the best ideas will prevail to the top. Exactly. That is right. that is awesome. And how is your organization structured? What do you mean? In regards to the size of it, how many people you have? Uh, uh, how many people do you have helping you? Do you have volunteers? We are a social venture. That means that we have a social bottom line, but we also have revenue and a business model under underlying what we do. We are um, both a nonprofit and a for-profit. We have a hybrid structure. We, um, we have a small core staff and uh, two full-time staff members. We're about to hire someone now and a part-time staff member. And then we have 10 teachers, about 10 to 12 regular teachers, who teach all around the United States. And then we have 75 high-level volunteers. We call them mentor editors. That's an amazing program. And then we, we work primarily in the, we, we leverage partnerships with universities and think tanks and nonprofits. And um, so that's where we are right now. We're looking to grow. So I don't know um, if that answers your question it or not. Does. We have a... We have a structure that evolved organically out of need. No, it certainly does answer my question. Um, what are some of your key goals for the Op-Ed Project for 2011? We're looking to launch longer-term partnerships with universities and think tanks and also with corporations so that we can have um, a longer tail of results or maybe even not call it a tail. Maybe that we can, we can create a continu continuing change in the way that underrepresented voices see themselves and, and an increase in their participation in the public sphere, in the marketplace of ideas. So we're looking for longer-term relationships. We're piloting new programs with universities. Um, they're not classes. Instead, we're looking to create cohorts over the course of a year, a group of people who will convene quarterly that we will be able to follow and support over the course of a year so that instead of just coming in and working with them and giving them an idea, we can actually help them change the way they think about themselves and their ideas in relationship to other people. And if we can do that, we'd like to expand that nationally to have a big social change through that, through that model. So that's one goal. We're looking to pilot long-term partnerships. Um, another goal, which um, is a little bit further along the line, but we are looking to increase the number of women participating in key opinion forums to a tipping point. So we're looking for that number to go from 15%, which is where it was when we started, to 30%, which is where a lot of research suggests a tipping point happens. Mm -hmm. so we're mm -hmm. gradually inching up towards that. And is there, I guess you do have a plan of action as to how you're going to march towards that goal. Is there anything that you can share with us in regards to how uh, women or other voices can get involved to help achieve that, uh, that objective? Absolutely. Um, we have a, a numbers-based solution. You know, as I was saying before, there's been a long and somewhat fruitless conversation about why we're underrepresented. Sexism, biology, socialization, what is it? And our answer is, Sort of, who cares? Let's, let's just increase the numbers. 
And if you look at the numbers, so we have a very numbers-driven solution. The, the idea we have is this is perhaps it's a pattern that keeps repeating itself because it's a pattern. And what would it take to change the pattern? What, what would the numbers have to look like? And if you look at key opinion forums and you look at the submission ratios as they currently are, it would take roughly, you know, in a, in a sort of educated guess way, it would take roughly 15,000 additional women submitting every year to key opinion forums, certain key opinion forums that we track. So that's a big number, but it's not an undoable number. We have about 4,000 alumni right now. So we know that that's an attainable number. It's just we also know that we couldn't do it on our own. We, we know we couldn't do it on our own as a, as a small staff. We couldn't do it on our own as a, as a larger but still small pool of, of media mentors. But we think we could do that through the women that we work with. And so the way that we are approaching that goal is we, we work with, with the idea of an outcome in mind, not just a service. Every training that we do and every program that we run is done with the idea of an outcome. And specifically, we want to see measurable, visible signs of thought leadership coming from the women who come through our programs, whether they are in a traditional op-ed online or in print, or whether they appear in some other media. And we track those, and that's what we're looking to do. We're looking to increase those numbers, the numbers of women submitting and the numbers of women publishing uh, to a tipping point. Considering all of the new social media tools, I'm sure you're, you're working on your ideas towards Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, all of those discussion groups and blogs. How does that fit in with your overall perspective in regards to uh, raising the, the, the level of voices in the, the media? I think there's a lot of uh, mystique around these, um, these different social media platforms. And the, the truth is that they're all just tools for communicating. That's it. Nothing more. We are, we are a platform agnostic, meaning we don't care what tools you use. What we care about is are you able to make a, a bold, fair, persuasive argument for the ideas and causes that you believe in? Are you able to use your expertise and your knowledge in a way that will benefit the world? How do you do that? So that's what we care about. We care about teaching people to use their expertise and knowledge in a way that will have a positive impact in the world. What, whatever media platform they choose to use is up to them and fine with us. That said, of course, we use all of those platforms. We, we use them in different ways. We use them generally to amplify the voices of participants who come through our program and to create and share opportunities with our community. And is there, have you looked at a way that you can uh, channel or organize or monitor uh, the success of those new different channels? Well, as I said, we track them on our website, so you can see that at www.theopedproject.org. We, we track both online and traditional media. We, you know, you, you can, there are also tools to track how things are um, referenced on Twitter and Facebook. Um, those are of, of secondary import in, in the tracking sense for us, in the, in the sense of tracking successes, because we're tracking the successes of arguments. So how many arguments are published? And uh, let's talk about leadership for a second. Um, when did you first realize your aspiration to be a leader? And you are a leader, Katie. <laughs> oh, thank you for saying so. Um, I don't know. 
I don't really think about it that much. Um, I, I just sort of have always looked at what was in front of me and what I thought was needed. And I, I think, um, you know, I've, I've always thought the, the one arena that I have thought that my, by accident of birth and whatever skills or talents were given to me, I feel like one arena that I've been able to be useful in and also interested in is voice. Who gets heard? Who doesn't get heard? And how does that affect the outcomes in the world? Yeah, now, for the benefit of my audience, uh, Katie is very humble. Uh, she refuses to tell you that uh, she has lectured at Harvard and appeared on ABC TV World News, Good Morning America, MSNBC, CNN, NPR, and All Things Considered. Uh, she is a graduate of Harvard and Columbia uh, universities, uh, and uh, she's the author of Little Red Riding Hood, excuse me, Little Red Riding Hood Uncloaked, Sex, Morality, and the Evolution of a Fairy Tale. And I'm going to tease my audience because we're going to talk about that book in our next segment. Uh, but uh, Katie is quite renowned in her efforts of, of getting these voices to be heard. Uh, Katie, what do you have coming up next, next year in regards to appearances? Are you speaking at any particular universities that you'd like to share with our audience that uh, they can come see you live in person? website. We do uh, so many events that um, it, it would be hard to list right now. And some of them are sessions that are open to the public, and some of them are speeches. Um, the sessions that are open to the public, for those, those of your listeners who are in New York, we have a session on February 2nd and 3rd, I believe. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and then there's one on the 5th in D.C., one on the 6th in San Francisco. So mostly, mostly February appearances for the public. Those are those are our pro, our op-ed project programs, not not speeches or anything like that. They're highly interactive and they're designed expressly to make you think about what you know in new ways and be able to communicate it so that it matters. Uh, that sounds very very thought provoking. And share with us uh, a little bit about the Peabody Gardner Fellowship Award that you received. Uh, how did that come about, and what did you have to do? And um, Oh, you're, you're bringing me back in time. You're bringing me back in time. That was an award I received in college to go travel in Haiti as a folklorist. Wow. Wow. That is awesome. That is awesome. I mean, uh, the Peabody Award, or the Peabody Gardner Fellowship is a very prestigious fellowship, and I just thought our audience should know about that. Well, tell us about the Tinker Grant and the Cordier Essay Prize from Columbia University. <laughs> oh, you're going back through my old resume. <laughs> You know, those are there are things that revolved around the work that I did. Well, I think it's important for our young women who are listening because you have established for yourself a track record of leadership starting, uh, I'm sure, in high, if we went back to high school, you would have had some awards there as well. But here in college, how you, you built upon your, your, your skill set and you developed your skill set and you entered into these various different uh, award contests and you won and you did some very significant things with them. And, and I think that has established a solid foundation for you to have the success that you're currently having at the Op-Ed Project. Well, I would say to, especially to college women who are listening, that um, you know, there's something that happens, I think, especially to women. You can see it statistically. We are the majority of 
students in college. We actually, many colleges practice a gender affirmative action to, um, to let men in because young women are so much more qualified as college applicants, in, overwhelmingly so. And they are disproportionately on the honor roll. You know, we really have a lot of power and a lot of, uh, you know, female brain power, um, you know, up until that point. And something happens. Something happens where women stop weighing in quite as much. And you can see it statistically. You can actually see it even in college, college uh, newspaper outlets that women begin weighing in a little bit less than men. And then it becomes more extreme a little bit further down the line. So I guess the thing I would want to say is that, you know, it starts when you're young. Realize that you have something of real value to contribute and work at that and, and let that grow. Don't, don't think that bowing out is a, um, serves the world. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Let me ask you one more question. Um, in your opinion, how does one prepare herself to be a great leader? Well, I don't know, but I think it would start with being aware of your value to others. What is your service to the world? Where, where are you in contribution to the world? Because knowing how you can be valuable to others is the surest way of making yourself more of a leader. Excellent. Thank you. Well, we are here with Ms. Katie Orenstein, author and founder and director of the Op-Ed Project. Katie, we want to thank you for your time today. And you're going to come back next week with us, correct? Um, a, a pleasure. I didn't know that, but I'd be pleased to. Okay. Uh, this is Darrell Gunter, your host of Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM, Seton Hall University. Remember, leadership begins with you. Have a great weekend.